Welcome. The parish is a church community in Alpharetta, Georgia, practicing the way of Jesus for the sake of others. Talks like these are just one part of how we gather to be deeply reshaped by Jesus. So we invite you to join us any Sunday morning for a full church gathering. You can find more information or contact us by visiting our website at parishanglican.org. Well, let's linger here for a moment and we'll reflect on the passage that Shannon read a moment ago. The transfiguration is a story of transformation, but it's also a story of transition. It's a turning point. And it stands at the center of the book of Mark like a continental divide where you can choose to go forward or you can choose to return. And there are these words in the story that Shannon just read where Jesus says, like, this is the time for you to decide who I am. And he starts with this question. He says, who do people say I am? Who do people say I am? I'm going to ask you to take 30 seconds or so and answer that question right now. Who do people say Jesus is? And then Jesus says, all right, well, that's what they say. But who do you say I am? And I'm going to invite you now in the secret place of your heart to name who Jesus is to you. And I'm going to ask you to hold on to that. We'll return to it later in the gathering. But let's take some time now and sit with the Holy Spirit for the next 60 seconds or so as you decide in your own words, who is Jesus to you? Jesus, we confess who you are in our lives. It's our first confession today. We'll make another confession later today, but for now we confess who Jesus is to us. In our story, in our lives, in our joy, and in our pain. We thank you for who you are. Because of your love, we are not overcome. 
we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. As we continue in our gathering, John's going to read us in part read us part two of our scripture reading this morning. This comes from Mark chapter nine, verses two through eight. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses who were talking with Jesus. Then Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. The gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, Lord Christ. Christ. Thanks, John. Okay, so the transfiguration. Uh, this is a scene that confuses and terrifies the disciples. Uh, it is a mysterious, disorienting, revelatory scene. Uh, it's maybe a little bit like when Moses comes to the burning bush. This is one of those thin places where heaven meets earth, where the, the sacred divine meets human experience. And uh, it is this transformative moment. It's a journey that happens in two parts, and we're going to look at it one at a time. And so this is part one, the ascent to the mountaintop. We'll trace that journey back from the start, uh, because just before the climb up the mountain of transfiguration, Jesus pulls the crowd aside, his disciples too, and he asks them that question that we just reflected on, like, who do people say I am? And, and then who do you say I am? And last week, if you were with us, we talked about the story of Peter's mother-in-law and how she is one of the first ones who gets it. She sees who Jesus really is long before any of the disciples do. But here we are now almost three years later in our story, and now Peter gets it. Jesus says, who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And Jesus says, you are absolutely right, Peter. That is true. But now let me let you in deeper on the secret of what that means. You know my identity. I'm about to tell you my essence. And he says, this Messiah, who I am, must suffer, must endure the cross, must be killed, and will be resurrected. And this is uh, shocking to Peter and his way of understanding the Messiah. And so they get into this back-and-forth argument. Peter's like, no way. No, you are the Son of God. You are not going to suffer. And Jesus is like, come at me, bro, right? And they have this like back-and-forth argument that ends with Jesus saying, get behind me, Satan, to one of his closest earthly friends and disciples, Peter. And he says, I do need to embrace this cross. Jesus then teaches them, if you're going to try to save your life, you'll end up losing it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it. And so if anyone wants to follow me, he's got to take up the cross. 
He's got to follow my example. And then he turns in this beautiful moment of almost immediate forgiveness and reconciliation. And to the one that he's just called Satan, he says, hey, Peter, come with me. Let's go mountain climbing together. And he invites Peter into the inner presence, the inner circle with Peter, with James, with John. They go up the mountain of transfiguration and uh, they begin climbing up. They pack their things. They start the ascent. And they get to the top of the mountain and there will always be opportunities in life to go up, to keep climbing, to reach the top, to get to the highest heights, to stand in the brilliant limelight. And you and I live in a world where the constant message, both implicitly and explicitly, is go higher, climb higher. Life is always expected to be like that up and to the right thing, a little bit better tomorrow than it was today. And that is the, the expectation that so often we carry into life. And so Jesus climbs up the mountain from Galilee where he has had a thriving ministry. Like the crowds are following him, miracles and healings are being done, and he is at this height of, uh, of acclaim and affirmation. But Jesus knows that when you reach the mountaintop, you cannot stay there forever. They get to the mountaintop. He's transfigured before them. There's blinding light. There's brilliant, dazzling clothes. There's a voice from heaven. The scene must have been transformative and awe-inspiring. And when everything in life comes together, you know you're on a mountaintop moment. Like there are just times in life where it's like it is all working right now. And that is the mountaintop experience that we so often wish were the constant experience in life. And this scene is surreal and it's perhaps a little bit strange. And just when you thought it couldn't get any stranger, here comes Moses and Elijah, right? Because why not? <laughs> That's just the last piece we were missing in this scene. Moses and Elijah show up and, uh, and these heroes of the Old Testament take their place next to Jesus. Why are they there? I think there's a number of reasons they're there. We won't delve deeply into all of them. But what we know about these heroes of the Old Testament is that each of them had mountaintop moments and they had to leave those mountaintops to go into places of suffering and being misunderstood. And perhaps they're there to provide some encouragement to Jesus for what lies just ahead. This company of prophets reminds us that there is a weave through time in this story. Jesus is not an isolated individual, an isolated instance, but instead he forms the continuity and the finale and the fulfillment of Israel's story. He is the one they have been waiting for. And since Moses is a figure of the law and Elijah a representative of the prophets, we would be stunned just like the disciples to hear a voice from heaven show up and say, but this one is my son. Listen to him. Listen to him. And there's this blinding light. And when the disciples find their footing again, Moses and Elijah are gone. And the passage ends with those words John read, Jesus only remains. And there is so much that could be said about that. But what we find is that the final testimony of Moses and Elijah is to recede into the background, to bear witness to the crucial work that we have as well, that we might become less so that Jesus may become more. And the voice says, listen to Jesus. And 
there is a ton we could say about that. It certainly elevates Jesus as the ultimate word of what God has to say, but in the context, there's something more specific that it means to listen to Jesus, right? The voice says, listen to Jesus. Well, listen to what? If we are to rewind to see the last thing Jesus says right before this, what we find is he says, take up your cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, you'll lose it. If you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. And so the voice is affirming, no, Peter, I know you want to dodge the suffering. I know you want to dodge the pain, but the way of the cross is integral. It is essential. It is part of what it means for the Messiah to be the Messiah. And so the voice says that if you want to follow, expect a cross. Like Jesus is the voice we are to listen to and, and, and suffering, death, and resurrection are central, non-negotiable elements of what it would mean. He doesn't only take the cross. He says, you take up your cross too. Follow after my example. And you can almost imagine Peter's wheels spinning here, right? He's like, well, what are we, we going to do? And Peter has this moment that is so human. I see myself in this moment. He's like, well, if suffering and sacrifice and surrender are on the downside of this mountain, let's just stay here forever, right? He's like, I can build us some tents. Like, I, I was a Boy Scout. I know how to do this. Let's camp out here for a while. And there's almost this sense of a child when the long weekend comes to an end and they don't want to go back to school or when a long beach vacation comes to an end and the adult doesn't want to go back home. It's like, can we just hang out on the mountaintop a little longer? But Jesus walked up the ascent with his hands wide open, ready to let go knowing that even on what is on the other side of the mountain, the Father can make something beautiful out of him. We're going to take a moment, we'll sing, we'll reflect on what it may look like for us to ascend the mountaintops of our lives in a posture of openness and surrender. Nothing I hold on to There's nothing I 
And so often we find ourselves wanting to stay on the safe ground when the path leads downward, but Jesus says, follow me still. Last week, we introduced this uh, worksheet, this spiritual uh, activity, this prayer guide that we called Lost Life and Resurrected Purpose. And rather than uh, just have that be a one-off and move on from it, we want to linger there for a little while, and we'll dive a little deeper into that exercise. So if you spent time with that last week, great. If you haven't yet, that's okay. Uh, the moment has not passed you by, and you can find that worksheet on the page that you're on right now. At the very top, there's a button that says Download the Lost Life and Resurrected Purpose Worksheet. You can also find it by always going to the parish slash loss. And that worksheet invites you to chart and name your losses. Where has there been pain, whether in this particular season of life where there's been a lot of pain for so many, or just in general? And we name and notice our losses that we might also begin to notice where God is coming to us through them and where he might be inviting us into a fresh work, a renewed purpose, a, a revitalized vocation. And so maybe you've taken that first step. Well, today what I'd like to do is out of that broader category of losses, I want to narrow down to a specific category of loss and try to flesh out a little bit what it might look like for you and I to notice and name the cross in our life that Jesus is inviting us to take up. How often do we do that, right? Like if you're anything like me, not very often, do I actually look at my life and say, where is there a cross for me in the way of following Jesus right now? And so what I want to try to do is flesh out for a moment the difference between the first type of losses, and they'll come up on the screen here in a second, the first type of losses as we discern our losses are circumstantial. Uh, they're circumstance, they're happenstance. They are the inevitable, sometimes deeply painful impact of life simply being what it is. These are the things that happen to us because we live in a broken world and the brokenness of that world sometimes intersects our story. And we find ourselves uh, dealing with pain, dealing with loss. And in that process, God is always coming to us to bring redemption. He's always coming to us to bring redemption. Um, and in those moments, we, are, we would maybe do well to pray like Jesus did, where he comes to those who are needing healing. He comes to those who need re restoration, and he prays things like, be clean, be at peace, be made well. Your faith has made you well. There are those kinds of losses, and even when we pray those prayers, we recognize that our prayer doesn't always happen the way we would expect or desire that it would. Sometimes Jesus comes in and removes the loss, and sometimes he comes and just takes up a cross right next to us and keeps company with us in that pain. But there are also other types of losses, and I want to say something clearly before we move to this second part, because if you miss this, you will misunderstand what I'm about to say next. It is my conviction that God never retributively punishes us in order to cause pain in our lives. Our Father is a good, good Father. He's never trying to teach us a lesson by putting some sort of pain or suffering on us, and yet... At the same time, Jesus says, in this world, you will have trouble. So we shouldn't be surprised. We shouldn't be shocked. And so the second type of losses are the types of losses where there are times where not only is there a loss, but there is a loss that feels specifically like a call to take up our cross. And these come in a number of ways. 
Uh, often there is this sense that though this is difficult, God has some sort of redemptive purpose in mind. God is in this. This is incredibly hard, but God's in it. Have you ever had a moment like that when you just know this is a path I'm being called to follow on? And sometimes this looks like a peeling back of the false self and, and God putting his finger on a part of our flesh, a part of our unchristlikeness. He pinpoints a part of our unchristlikeness and he uses an invitation to the false self to die. That we might lay down our way of being that is dysfunctional, that is not like Jesus, and instead be resurrected in the newness of life, which often feels like a death in the moment, but actually is restorative in nature. Other times it may look like a brokenness in our heart, where there is this way of being in the world that is not serving us, but we're so used to it that it's actually more threatening to change than it is to just keep going with that pattern that may not be serving us well. And Jesus there too invites us to trust him, to die to that part of our approach to life and to be raised up into a newness of life. And I call these times where there is an invitation either to greater Christ-likeness, which often comes through suffering, which comes through sacrifice, which comes through surrender, I call these times rain dances because they are times where it is scary and stormy all around, and yet there's something in you that says, there's something to celebrate here. There's something being brought to life here. There is something life-giving worth rejoicing in. There's like this strange and intimate beckoning to follow a little bit more in obedience, even though you know the hardship such obedience will involve. And when you feel that whisper of the Holy Spirit, what does it look like to say, like Jesus, yes, to laying down that part of my life I'm so afraid to lose that I might receive a newness of life instead? These calls to the cross involve a real dying, like something in us has to die, but ultimately it is for the sake of Jesus, it is for the sake of others, and it is for the sake of our own healing that we embrace the, cr the cross, trusting that God is the God of resurrection. And so in these moments, our prayer might look more like it did for Jesus on the cross, where he says, Father, if, you, if this cup can pass from me, let it, let it pass, but not my will, but yours be done. And into your hands, I commit my spirit. And so we'll end there, because what a perfect prayer for what is just ahead in our story. This Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. It is the perfect time to pray, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. It is the time where we name the ultimate letting go, which is our death and our dying. And we trust that even in that, God has a redemptive purpose. And so throughout this Lent, we're going to explore this theme a little bit further. Losing ourselves that we may find our true life. But until then, I want to encourage you to spend some time this week. Print out that worksheet and sit in a time of prayer, a time of journaling, a time of discernment. Chart your losses, but try to pinpoint one specific way Jesus may be asking you to take up your cross and follow him, trusting that God can be glorified in the descent as much as he is glorified in the ascent. As we end this time, we're going to move to a period of confession, and rather than confess liturgically the way we typically do, we're going to confess meditatively this morning. Earlier in our gathering, as David begins to play, uh, we asked you to name who Jesus is to you. Who is Jesus to you? And the reason we asked you to name that is because it is only when we trust 
Jesus. It is only when we know who Jesus is that we can move toward what we know will be difficult, that we can move toward the downside of the mountain, because we know that this Jesus is for our good and will lead us to life, even through the valley of the shadow of death. And so for our confession today, what I'm going to ask you to do is, for 60 seconds or so, call to mind some place where you know God's asking you to let go. And remember who Jesus is to you and then pray these words, for love of Jesus, I will let go. Because I know who Jesus is to me, I will let go. You can do that in the form of a breath prayer as you inhale for love of Jesus as you exhale. I will let go. And just like you exhale the breath, you can exhale that thing you're holding on to, that anxiety, that fear, that disobedience, that unchristlikeness, and trust that even though it may feel like something essential is being stripped away, God is in it. Let's pray for love of Jesus. I will let go. Jesus, would you help us to know who you are to us? We know who you are to the world. We know who you are to the cosmos. But help us also to know who you are to us. So that deeply convinced of that, we would have an emboldened spirit to follow where you lead. We want to be your followers. Help us and grace us to that end. In the name of Jesus, we pray.